Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Chelsea Ruckman. Uh, she's an assistant professor in ecology at the University of Toronto and a scientific advisor to the Ocean Conservancy. And we're going to talk about um, various uh, toxicological issues. I have problems saying that word in uh, environmental chemistry. So, Chelsea, thanks for coming. No, thanks for having me. If you would tell me about uh, your research in your own words, what are you working on? Sure. Um, I guess in general, I work on uh, anthropogenic contaminants, so things that are added to the environment by us, by humans, um, and how they impact ecosystems. So I'm interested in how the things that we produce and use get into the environment and how they interact with animals and plants and other biota across, you know, from from the genes that are in our body all the way up to how it impacts the population, a community of individuals or species um, to the ecosystem level. And I have spent more than the last 10 years researching um, plastic pollution. So I've been researching how large plastics and small plastics get into the environment and then how they interact with ecosystems and, and whether or not they impact ecosystems negatively. So I, I study yeah, anthropogenic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, in, in regards to plastic, so a uh, you know a plastic Pepsi bottle is certainly anthropogenic. So you, for instance, you'd study that, or you know, plastic bottles and how they get into the environment and what happens to them. Is that an example? That is an example, but we don't spend a lot of time focusing on the entire Pepsi bottle. We spend time focusing on the the tiny little particles from the bottle that that have broken down. So when a large plastic product ends up in the environment breaks down into many, many pieces. And those small pieces, often smaller than a pencil eraser, are the ones that we study. Yeah, how does that happen? How does a, um, like a monolithic plastic bottle turn into microplastics or nanoplastics? What, have you identified the process? Yeah, so they end up in the environment. They're sitting there in the sun. They're sloshing around in waves, maybe be, being beaten down by sand. So often it's a physical weathering process or photodegradation, so breaking down from the sunlight into smaller and smaller pieces. We're only just beginning to understand the biodegradation piece, so how they're broken down by uh, organisms. And there's some evidence that suggests that they do, so that they, um, they can use plastic as a carbon source. But that mechanism of breaking down plastic is incredibly slow. And so we think it's that physical weathering process that is really what turns them into small pieces. Has this been modeled in the lab? I mean, is, is there a certain point, you know, like if you have a plastic bottle and the cap's on versus not on, or, you know, when the, when the hull of it is breached, is there a certain point where the, acceler the, um, the degradation really accelerates at a turning point? Uh, I mean, there's actually, because we don't live at the timescales for which this happens, or, I mean, in some ways we do, but in a lab experiment, we might try to speed it up. There's been work that's been done under, you know, certain types of light to try to figure out the degradation process. But we know very little about how quick this process is in the environment. Um, 
I don't think it has anything to do with whether the cap is on or off the bottle. I really would suspect it has more to do with the physical environment that it's in, how warm it is, whether there's a ton of sunlight. I'd imagine it would break down faster at the surface than in the deep sea, for example. Well, has, has anyone identified at least, okay, the sun seems to be the strongest correlate with the, the breakdown speed, or is it, you know, sand, is it weathering, just in general, the, you know, the motion of tides back and forth across the surface. Maybe it's bacteria that accumulate there and break the bonds of the plastic and open it up. I mean, what, do you, what would you say is the major factors? Has that been studied? Um, you know, if it has been studied in that level of detail, it's a little beyond my expertise because I don't research that. I have a student who was trying to do a project really looking into, into that. I know it is the physical is more, more than the biological, but whether it's the difference between sunlight and breaking down by sand, I, I would be afraid to say um, as an expert because it's a little beyond what I do. If you want to traumatize a graduate student, you give them like a plastic bottle and say, I need some microplastics made out of this by Friday. We use a coffee grinder. That's how we do that. Okay. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, you know, I understand you don't know the degradation process, but once it gets to the microplastic level, is that where your focus of study is? Like, you know, tell me what, what are you doing in regards to microplastics or nanoplastics? Yeah, so what we usually do in regards to plastic, and the reason I don't study that breakdown process, is because we're sampling from the environment using nets or taking bulk water samples or looking in the gut of an organism, quantifying the plastic that we see there. And by count, the majority of the plastic in the ocean, in a lake, in the atmosphere, in an animal, are pieces that are smaller than five millimeters in size. So what we do is quantify it in the environment characterize it to see what types of plastic is it made out of, um, what size are they, where do they, what type of um, morphology or shape are they, which tells us something about where it came from. If it's a fiber, it might have come from clothing. If it's a tiny piece of, of black rubber, it might be a tire and roadwear particle. And then the other thing we do is we try to understand how it impacts organisms. So that's where we sometimes take plastic and put it in a coffee grinder, make microplastic, and expose organisms to it to see how it impacts them when they try to reproduce, how it impacts their growth, whether it causes a, a deformity, those types of things. So again, yeah, what major themes have you noticed? You know, what, what has this been tested on and what happened to the, uh, the creature that it was tested on? Yeah, so if you look across the scientific literature, uh, what we tend to find is that the smaller the plastic, the more likely it is to cause an impact. It seems that there are more papers that demonstrate a negative effect with microfibers than that don't, whereas for the, the spheres, it seems less of them cause an impact. So it seems shape matters, size matters. What we tend to see in terms of effects to an individual organism is sometimes, um, sometimes it's something like a change in, in gene expression, which is at a very low level that's kind of hard to, hard to really understand. You know, the genes are, are important for how we reproduce, how we grow. But then we also see um, changes in growth. So reduced growth uh, as an organism develops, it's been seen in fish and it's been seen in uh, zooplankton. Uh, we've seen re reductions in the amount of eggs that are laid and the viability of the offspring, um, particularly in zooplankton. And then there's been some evidence that that then leads to a population level effect where you have less, less offspring. When it comes to, you know, how does, microplastic in nature impact a community of different types of organisms. It's really hard to know because it's hard to study that in the field. 
So there's been some people that have taken a community of organisms, let's say, that live in the sediment and expose microplastic to them and have seen some changes in, you know, some species is more tolerant than another. And all of a sudden you have the worm dominating over the rest of the animals in that system. So there's some evidence of, of those effects, but we definitely need more studies to really understand um, how they're impacting animals in nature, um, which we're trying to understand. I think a lot of other groups are too. If you figured out, or if, you know, people have figured out, for instance, um, you know, spherical particles are less harmful than fibrous ones. Do you think you could communicate that to industry or to regulation and, you know, have industry, let's say I'm just, it's just an example. It's not real, but it comes mm. predominantly from, you know, uh, again, plastic bottles that people use to drink liquids out of, you know, sodas, et cetera. Could you then say to the producers of the plastic bottles, we need you to find a formulation so that when your stuff does break down, it's more spherical than fibrous, you know, because it will at least lessen the impact. You know, you, you may not be able to dispose of less. And when it gets in the environment, we probably can't stop that, but at least we can make it less harmful. Is there that circular communication at all or would there be? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's that line of thinking is um, why we think it's so important to characterize the types of plastics we see in the environment, be it biomorphology or the actual plastic type, whether it's polyethylene or polystyrene. And, and it's both important to think about how the different shapes or material types may impact an organism in terms of, sure, I could say to industry, you know, PVC and polystyrene seem to cause more of a hazardous effect than polyethylene and polypropylene. And they tend to actually, in some cases, be more recyclable. Let's say for PET, that's certainly the case. Um, maybe this is a more sustainable material. But the other thing we try to understand is the dominant pathways for plastics for getting into the environment. So we sample wastewater treatment plant effluent. We sample the runoff from an agricultural field. We sample stormwater running off of an urban, uh, an urban area. And we look at the types of plastic in there and how much we see. And that way we can also say, so this is a conversation that we can have with industry, but also with municipalities is, you know, stormwater seems to be a significant source. We should, in addition to working upstream with industry, put um, filters on storm drains, for example, to stop some of that material because some materials like bottles you could make differently, make out of different materials. Tires are tricky. And we see an awful lot of little bits of tire dust in the environment. And so for that, it's hard to understand, is it that we need to make the product different? And maybe, but in the meantime, while we figure that out, or if we decide it's, that's too tricky, it's good to also trap it. So we kind of try to tackle that from two sides is what's the dominant pathway to the environment? And then once it's there, what types might be the most impactful? Yeah, I can imagine, let's say with tire dust, you know, if there's a highway that's used a lot that happens to be, you know, elevated and near a certain body of water that's a tributary, that one highway, for instance, and the traffic from it could be, you know, with the runoff when it rains, that could be responsible, for instance, for a large percentage of, you know, dust and particles from tires when other roads may not be, just as an example. So it's like a whole ecological, it's difficult, I can see, to think of what to do with your work because there's a whole ecology you have to think about. Where's it coming from? How's it migrating? Where's it going? What's it affecting, et cetera? No, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of questions to ask about the ecosystem, the ecology, how it impacts, why it matters, what types 
Um, but also when you think about solutions and you think about the conversation you can have with industry, the conversation you have with municipalities around waste, the conversation you have with the consumers, it's so complex. And at the end of the day, there's no one size fits all solution. There's like a bucket full of them that all need to be enacted at the same time that include this combination of changing the plastics economy, maybe to something more circular and more sustainable to um, better waste management and to capture and clean up. And so it all kind of falls along that spectrum. Most of our science is focused on what happens once it gets into the environment, but we do a lot of outreach to think about how can our science then impact those three buckets of solutions. Well, because you're looking at things that most probably don't, what kind of interesting insights or big learnings have you gotten? Surprises? Yeah, I think some of the most interesting things we've found lately is, I guess there's a couple things. One, we spend a lot of time right now looking at these pathways we've gotten really interested in. You know, in a watershed, what are the contributing sources of microplastics into the environment? There's a lot of work on wastewater, a lot, but there's less work on urban stormwater runoff and less work on agricultural runoff. And we actually find that in some areas, depending on, you know, how much agriculture they have upstream, or as you said earlier with the highways, right, how much road there is and how much traffic density you have, stormwater and agriculture are potentially more important pathways and certainly in specific places than wastewater. And we also find a distinct signature of microplastic in them, whereas in the stormwater, we find more of these black rubbery fragments and other types of fragments and less of these microfibers. Wastewater's got so many microfibers because of washing machine effluent going to a treatment plant. So one of the things that's really exciting for us is like these different communities of microplastics that we see entering the environment, which can inform a solution. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting right now that people are finding is um, that I, microplastics seems to interact a little bit more intricately with the ecosystem than I think we first suspected it might. Um, on the one hand, people are starting to see that the microplastic can actually transfer outside the gut and get into the tissue of animals, which means it's moving through a food web differently than just eating it and then the animals pooping it out or ingesting it. And also there's evidence of carbons that are specific to the plastics being used, as I said, a food source for certain microbial communities, which we really didn't appreciate before. And people have only found this by making plastic with a specific carbon that they could then trace in an ecosystem. So I'm really curious about kind of how plastic sort of cycles through both, you know, animals and plants and, and microbes, but also just through the system in general, the way we think of how water cycles and carbon cycle. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, what have you noticed from the um, potential point sources? Are there ones that, you know, contribute a very specific type of waste or a lot more waste than others? You kind of mentioned that earlier, but you know, what have you found there? Yeah, well, I can speak specifically to, uh, let's take California as an example. We did some work in the San Francisco Bay Area and then upstream in the Sacramento Bay Delta. So upstream in Sacramento, before you get into the Salty Bay, it's more freshwater coming from that bread basket of North America where there's a bunch of agriculture. You get down into the San Francisco Bay and it's more surrounded by an urban area. We find in the San Francisco Bay, stormwater is a orders of magnitude greater source than wastewater. 
And that's because I think you have San Francisco and all these huge cities around it, big highways, lots of traffic. You get up into the Sacramento Bay Delta and you start sampling up there. Agriculture seems to be your dominant pathway, which really hasn't been shown in many other places. We see the same thing in the Mississippi River, right around that area where there's a lot of agriculture upstream. And that entire river is dominated by agriculture as a land use. Um, so for me, it says that while wastewater is good, it's good to focus on, I'm not saying it's not important. Um, it seems we've been sort of ignoring stormwater runoff and agricultural runoff for a bit. And um, you may think why agriculture, that's just dirt and crops, but there's quite a bit of plastic used in agriculture that's called plasticulture. And also the- um, really? like what? Yeah. What's it used for and how? If you think about um, driving by a strawberry field, for example, um, sometimes they use plastic as mulch. So they'll use it to tarp the fields to warm the soil, particularly in a region where it's not as warm as that crop might prefer. Um, there's slow release pesticides that sometimes use a polymer. Um, the other thing that's interesting is the sewage, the, the, so sewage sludge, when wastewater is treated, the way the microplastic is quote unquote removed from this, the effluent is that it's put into the sludge and we recycle that sludge by putting it on farm fields. Now, it's good to recycle the sludge and use it. We use it as fertilizer. Um, but unfortunately, that comes with the contaminants that were treated in the wastewater treatment plant if they weren't chemically treated out. And so microfibers and other microplastics are spread onto agricultural fields with the sludge. So we also see that um, signature coming off of the field. Oh, man, that's horrible. Yeah, well, I don't I know, know if it's horrible, but it, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, I know about NPK, you know, and toxic blooms and stuff like that from agriculture runoff, but I didn't know about plastic runoff. Right. Yeah. And the new nutrient pollution from agriculture is, is enough of a, enough of an issue, right? So we always feel like we're kind of compounding our multiple stressors on top of each other. Well, what would you do about, <clears throat> I mean, stormwater seems like a very difficult thing to control. How do you identify the major sources of stormwater? Um, that seems to be very difficult. What, what do you do there? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is where I think you do need some sort of capture. So of course, upstream, we can try to reduce the amount that gets on the side of the road. So that's a reduction in litter and litter items and maybe the plastics that we use that likely are to become litter items. Um, but some of it's pieces of road and tire. And we've used, um, there's something called a rain garden or a bioretention cell is the fancier scientific name. But a rain garden is often the name that you see if they put up a sign about them. Um, what it is, is it's basically as the water runs down the street, it goes into a storm drain. And instead of going straight through the storm drain into the river or the bay or the ocean, depending on where it is, it goes through literally a garden. And so the water is directed through the soil, which filters out the contaminants that are in it. So the pest, the I don't know, you might have some organic chemicals that are in there and metals, they'll stick to the soils and the soils will filter out the microplastic. So we've seen a 90% or higher reduction of microplastics in stormwater runoff after it's gone through a rain garden. So this type of filtration solution, which is also used for other contaminants and chemicals, um, works for microplastics quite well. So <clears throat> the rain garden, I mean, does it segregate them? Does it filter them? Or, or, you know, tell me more about the action of it. What does it do? It's literally filtering them. So it's just, if you can imagine running water through sand, the particles are going to get stuck as it's running through. 
So in a, they use this in a wastewater treatment plan as well. Sometimes the, the final stage, which is the tertiary treatment, the third stage is just a gigantic sand filter. And so the purpose of that is just to stop the particles as they're flowing through. And it does the same thing. And then at some point, once that rain garden is kind of at saturation for what you're trying to catch, it needs to be replaced. Yeah, I know in certain places, <clears throat> if it rains a lot, it can overwhelm the, um, the waste treatment system and they, you know, they might have to dump just untreated sewage or untreated things into the, the local rivers and streams when there's overflow. But at least that's an exception instead of the rule with uh, stormwater runoff. If there's not a plan, then it's, uh, you know, it happens all the time. Yeah, no, that's right. And that, that sewage overflow issue is really most critical when you have your stormwater going through the wastewater treatment plant before it's released. And I think, I think most stormwater is not sent through a wastewater treatment plant first. I think those are more typical in older cities and in newer cities, they're often separated. So you don't have that overflow be as big of an issue. Are there any um, <clears throat> compounds that appear to be particularly troublesome bad guys that need to really be preferentially filtered out? Or is it more that literally physically the size of particles and you know, the morphology of them is more important? Like what factors do you see are really the big levers in this? Yeah, that is the question that I guess kind of keeps me up at night. <laughs> there, are, there are many different studies out there where people have asked questions about how microplastics and nanoplastics impact organisms. And when you do um, a synthesis or when you put together all of those studies, you see that there are just as many studies that find an effect as that don't. And the question is why? And so we've tried to sort this out by, and I think the reason is because microplastics aren't microplastics aren't microplastics. They're this diverse range of sizes and particle types. And I think those matter for toxicity or for effect, at least, whether it's a physical or a chemical effect, we're still trying to understand. I'd say all we really know now is that the smaller particles seem to be worse than the bigger ones um, across the literature. And like I said, fibers seem to, for some reason, be potentially a more hazardous shape, but we have less tests on fibers than we do on some of those other morphologies. And for polymer type, the only thing I've really seen sort of stand out is that the polystyrene sometimes seem to be a bit interesting. And tire dust, um, we have seen deformities in larval fish that have been exposed to tire dust leachate, and we've seen a complete loss of pigmentation in the eye. And we're trying to understand why and whether that continues as they grow up. So we kind of continue to look into this. But the particle of tire is, is filled with lots of different types of chemicals. It's a really complex mixture of ingredients, whereas a plastic water bottle has much less. It's a, a much simpler mixture of ingredients. And so I think this is why with the tire, but we still have a lot to learn. You coordinate with people that live in these areas to um, look at their body burden of various chemicals and look for commonalities there as well? So we personally don't, but if I had a nickel for every time someone asked me that question, I could probably retire. Um, I'm not a human biologist and I'm probably not uh, certified or qualified to do that, but there's a... Um, there's a Bruce Lurie and Lori and Rick Smith wrote a great book called Slow Death by Rubber Duck. And in this book, they spent a week at a time trying to expose themselves to their chemical of choice. So when they chose mercury, they ate tuna for three meals a day. When they chose flame retardants, they sat in a room with a new couch and carpet. Um, they came into my lab and said, can I wear a fleece, drink bottled water, 
and I don't remember what else they were going to do and then poop in a, in a container and give it to you. And I said, no, <laughs> um, but I put them in touch with researchers that could. And um, so they did measure the amount in their body burden. There's been a couple other studies that have done that. Um, we do see microplastics in human feces. It's not a huge surprise um, because we know it's in drinking water and we know it's in fish tissue and we know it's in dust, right? If I sit here and look at my computer, I see lots of different microfibers coming off of the furniture and the carpet and different pieces in my house and that lands on my food or falls in my water cup. So the real question is, is there harm from that exposure? And those types of researchers that are qualified to ask those questions are just starting to do that science. Yeah, it might be a good coordination in the future <clears throat> between you and them because you're looking at organisms and how they deal with these compounds and they're looking at, you know, at people. Right. So I'm sure you can inform your, your, each other in the future, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, because we are animals too at the end of the day. So are there any understandings that you feel like you're getting near to figuring out in the next you know, year or so? Is there anything that's uh, big and important? Or is it kind of like a steady progression of understanding as you're working? I mean, it's always a steady progression as you're working. But I think one thing we're really excited about right now in our lab is um, we're really interested in, you know, at first we found that that animals ate plastic. We knew that they ingested it and we knew that it was in their gut. Then we wanted to understand, are they always just eating it directly or does it actually go from predator to, or from prey to predator? So if, you know, big fish eats little fish with plastic in its stomach, does it move in the food web? And we know that it does. So there is what we call trophic transfer of, of microplastics. And then the next question that we were interested in is, okay, well, we, with, with chemical contaminants, we often ask, do they bioaccumulate? So we talk about this with mercury accumulating in organisms. So do you have an increase in your body over time of exposure? So that is that question of do microplastics move out of the gut and into the tissue? So we've seen evidence of this in the field. And so we're starting and there are other papers coming out. So it seems like, okay, it seems like maybe they do at least translocate, which we can maybe then say they have this potential to bioaccumulate. So the next thing we're trying to understand is, does that mean they biomagnify? So we talk about this with, um, again, with mercury, right? We're told, go ahead and eat seafood, but don't eat too much because you might have mercury poisoning. And that's particular with top predators, right? You don't, you tell people not to eat certain types of fish like swordfish, particularly if you're a woman of childbearing age. And this is because the top predators have the highest concentration of these contaminants. They're biomagnified in their system because they're eating the little animals that also bioaccumulated the chemical. So the next question that we're right about to be able to answer is whether they biomagnify. And we have samples that were just ready to go on the instrument and then COVID-19 happened. So we're back in the lab slowly and, uh, and we'll run those samples in like a week. So we're pretty excited um, to have made some strides on these questions and get finally get to like that final question. Are you going to see if things like tire dust or other pollutants biomagnify in the initial creature that ingested it or in higher predators, as you said? Yeah, both. So what we have right now is a food web from the Monterey Bay Canyon. So I used to live in California, which is why I have so many California samples and stories. Um, but we have a food web that starts from you know, your zooplankton, your lowest level of the food chain up to the organisms that eat them, to the organisms that eat them and up to your big fish like salmon and tuna. And so what we do is we have their tissue, so their filet, 
we blend them up into what we call a fish milkshake. You run it through a filter and then you put that in an instrument that will tell you how much of each type of polymer you have in each sample, if it's there at all. Hmm. Makes sense. Okay. So hopefully you're going to get data on that soon. We are excited to get data on that soon. Yeah. Sometimes instruments break and they take longer than you want, but if all goes well, um, we'll have a better understanding of that question. And then if, if the answer is yes, microplastics biomagnify, then we'll try to understand more about how, because they're particles. And so they do different things than um, soluble chemicals, for example. Yeah. One last thing to ask you, I spoke to someone that talked about nanoplastics. Is it, is there another size threshold below which there are other sets of problems or is it just too much to even contemplate right now? It's not too much to, compl- to, to contemplate. And we contemplate it all the time. The hard thing is um, nanoplastics are really hard to measure. So there are lots of studies where um, people have shown that a large piece of plastic can become nanoplastics. Um, and you can see it under, you know, scanning electron microscopes, which can see that small. Um, so we know that big plastics become nanoplastic. There are studies that have dosed organisms with nanoplastics because they buy them from a store and they know what they are and they see an impact. Remember when I was saying size matters, it's the nanoplastic seems to cause more of an impact than the larger. The question is in the ocean, we can't measure them. We don't yet, or we're close, but we don't have the tools in order to do it. So everybody who's looked at them in the environment has just said they're there, not how many. And so we have lots of questions about like whether they flock together to become a bigger particle, whether they stay that tiny, um, and then if so, do they get into organisms? Because if they do, the question you asked me is, are they potentially, do they have pose a different risk? And because they will move through the body so much easier than a larger particle, and because they can maybe transfer those chemicals with them, People think they may be more risky, um, but it's, you know, you can't really ask questions about what you can't measure. So we're really trying to get to that point first of, can we measure it? Well, very good. Chelsea, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? For our work, so uh, my website is rockmanlab.com, and then we have an extensive outreach program called the U of T Trash Team that is also, um, you can get there from that same link. Well, very good, Chelsea. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.